Amen. I've preached to less. Holidays are holiday for everybody but pastors. Well, I'm sure there are some other trades out there. Moms, <laughs> not a trade. Second Kings, chapter 20. Prayer defeats fatalism. Fatalism, one definition, is the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. Now, fatalism in the Christian, of course, diminishes faith, causes one to question the goodness of God, the fairness of God, or the justice of God. The fatalists, by denying freedom, because, of course, if everything's predetermined, does your freedom really matter? You become a puppet, not a person. And the Bible does not teach fatalism, and we're going to see that tonight, not only from this section, but I'll cross-reference another. Fatalism, what it does is it smears the individual with pessimism. Why bother? The dice has been rolled. The conclusion is fixed. And what becomes of the pessimist? Well, 12 men were sent from that desert in Moab to spy out the promised land. Ten of them were pessimists. The pessimists died in the desert of Moab. They always do. But the men of vision and purpose heroically lived on. Of course, I'm talking about Joshua and Caleb. Spies went into the land. They were pessimists. There's no way we can do this. It's set. It doesn't matter what God said. This is a done deal. This evening we have a story of a good king who was a good man. And yet he's terminally ill. That's the diagnosis from God through the prophet Isaiah. He lived most of his life under the shadow of death through the Assyrians. And because of that, he did fortify Jerusalem and he sought God passionately. I think he sought God passionately even if the threat wasn't there. But it certainly, certainly motivated him. To seek the Lord. And even though he lived in these dark days, he remained good and productive through those bad years. He was not a fatalist. And that's what the Bible gives to us. It teaches us how to live life. It reminds us how to live life once it's taught us. And so the stories overlap and approach the same thing, different perspectives. You can lose sight of those perspectives. Because if you become a fatalist, why bother with my devotions? Things aren't going well. They're not serving me well. I thought I'd learn the Bible and life would be better and I'd be happier. Judah, over which Hezekiah is king, I believe was invaded twice by the Assyrians, two major invasions. The first one, not long after, eight years or so after the Northern tribes had fallen to the Assyrians. It's very difficult to chart the reign of the kings and a lot of the chronology because, for instance, the reigns of the kings were often overlapped. They co-reigned, co-regencies. Manasseh was likely king along with his father for some period of time. And often it's omitted. And you have to just look at events. And so it gets very tricky. And I don't want to spend too much time on that. 
But I do believe there were two invasions. Really not in, if there was one, the events still are rich with information to guide us as a lamp to our feet, which God's word is supposed to be. Hezekiah once stopped paying tribute money to the Assyrians. That didn't go well. They came against him and he submitted in shame. The second time, though, he doubles down. They come to invade. This, what we're considering this evening, his sickness happens between the two invasions. They come, they go, they'll be back. He knows that. He gets sick towards their return. At that second return of the Assyrian army, God will wipe them out. But right before they come, or in the midst of it at the very least, he gets sick. And then he is cured. And the Babylonian envoys come, and, and they just, you know, hey, we're glad you're doing better. And that provokes Syria. They're saying, hey, you know, there's collusion going on between the two against us, a conspiracy to resist. And so things get ugly again. He um, gets through the sickness, gets 15 years added to his life by God. By the time the uh, Babylonians come to visit him, he's got 14 left. He's not about to spend them in captivity. And he knows God's promise. Because Isaiah told him that they would be the city would be delivered, that he would be delivered. Get that in verse 6. And he believed these promises that God gave to him. Even in the midst of his illness, as the prophet is ministering to him. He's not shut down. He gets loaded with pride. God would deal with that too. Let me just take it from 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and I'll repeat this later. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, those envoys that had come down to wish him well after he was cured, because word got out, he's terminal, and then all of a sudden word gets out, he's cured. It continues there whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. Well, in context, where that is in Chronicles, that's connected to his healing. And then it says, God withdrew from him in order to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart, that Hezekiah would know, because God already knows. And so he's put through another test. Pride enters his heart. That's connected to these Babylonians coming here. Let me show you everything we have in the palace. He was just loaded with pride, and it became a problem. And so we'll begin there, in verse 20, uh, verse 1, sorry. <laughs> You're not so lucky. But we get out of here early tonight. In those days, Hezekiah was sick, near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Uh, quite blunt, I would say. Isaiah the prophet was his pastor and his friend and his mentor. He was older. He had been around a long time. Hezekiah always respected the rank of Isaiah as the prophet. He said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And Hezekiah was devastated by this. He didn't take it well. We expect 
Christian, we expect too much sometimes of each, from each other and sometimes too little. Hezekiah, again, he took it hard. And in print, the bedside manner of Isaiah doesn't seem to be that good. But, you know, we don't know. He could have been weeping when he told him, for all we know. We, can't, we don't want to gang up on the prophet. This is the story. These are the facts. He became sole king, or <laughs> the uh, sole ruler of Judah when he was 25 years old. As I mentioned, he may have been co-regent with Ahaz, his father. And now he is about 39, 40 years old. He's going to be granted 15 years. He dies when he's 54, 55 years old. We get that, some more of this in verse 6. Verse 2, Then he turned his face to, toward the wall and prayed to Yahweh, saying, Now before we get to the prayer, he turns his face to the wall so no one can see his agony, his breakdown, that he's devastated. He can't hide this. He's not bitter, but he is emotionally burdened, that is for sure. He's probably sobbing between the words. In verse 3, and this is his prayer, Remember now, O Yahweh, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and have done what, is, what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly, uncontrollably. No man wants to cry like this. This is the prayer of a righteous but very sick man. And he didn't, it's not that he did something to deserve this. He is a righteous king. He's got some pride issues that God will work through with him. But you know, Satan comes along and says, you know, if you have something, you get really sick, you've done something, you're getting judged. Well, he's the accuser of the brethren. Be ready for that. Hezekiah never bowed down. There's no record of him bowing down to false gods. He remained true to Yahweh. He loved King David. Nehemiah loved King Hezekiah. And we'll come to that in a moment. At least that's my, my take on it. He's not boasting here. It's the voice of a clear conscience relative to other evils. In other words, he, he knew, Lord, I've been serving you. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but you know I've been serving you. Nehemiah writes no less than four times a similar thing telling God about his righteousness. Nehemiah 5, 19, 13, 14, 22, and 31. I'll just take uh, Nehemiah 13, 14. He says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. And so he's just telling it like it is. He's not boasting, I'm such a good servant. He's a Lord, please remember me. I've tried so hard to serve you. We would understand it in language like that. Man is never so depraved that he can't respond to God. Otherwise, people can blame God for being in hell. Yeah, I went to hell because I didn't have a chance. I don't believe that's in the Bible. I don't believe anything in the Bible says you're so bad you can't even say yes or no. Otherwise, God could not say, come, let us reason. He does say to the sinner in that verse in Isaiah chapter 1, though your sins are crimson red, come, let's reason, so they could be white as snow. That's what I believe. And 
I love it. That was my first impression at salvation, that God, God can interact with man. He can forgive and love. I was so happy when I got saved. I was giggling and weeping at the same time. I didn't know what to do. To realize that the Bible was true, that Jesus is real, and I've never let theology take that away from me. Hezekiah wept bitterly. bitterly. He's not ready to die. A righteous man. We would think that, you know, it's one, one good commentator. You know, we can all be wrong, you know, when we speak about the Bible. It's such a deep, heavy book. One good one, and on this point I disagree with him. Uh, he's long, long gone anyway, in heaven, no doubt. But he says, well, you know, the ancients didn't really have a, a, a good knowledge of heaven. But that's not true. David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And no one will pluck me out of his hand. Verse 4, and it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court, that the word of Yahweh came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of Yahweh. This is so magnificent. Could you imagine Isaiah getting this information? He had just told the man, you're going to die. And now God catches him and says, I want you to go back. Why? Because the man prayed. It's not fatalism, isn't it? Sorry, it's set. It's your time. Your number's up. Don't even bother asking. You're done. That's not what happened. The prophet did not get very far before God spoke to him and revised his judgment on the king. Life is not fatalistic. It can appear to be so. but It doesn't have to be so. Some things are set. We don't know those things. Hezekiah didn't give in to that. This is similar to Nathan being sent back to God about the building of... You remember, David said, look, I want to just build God a house. No more tent over the, the Ark of the Covenant. And Nathan said, man, I love it, David. Go for it. God's with you. And then Nathan goes going and God says, <clears throat> excuse me, I did not say that. You said that. You need to go back to David and tell him that's not how it's going to work out. But Isaiah... He's not mistaken. When he said, you're going to die, that was the truth. God didn't say, no, no, that's not so. We clearly told it. This was the message that God gave to Isaiah to tell Hezekiah he would die. And so there's a big difference. Isaiah is sent both times, and he's right both times, even though they don't agree. Because there's an adjustment. There is the perfect will of God. There is the permissive will of God. And there is the adjusted will of God. Jeremiah chapter 18. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. That statement is of first-class importance for understanding all prophecy. It removes entirely the realm of fatalism from God. There God said through Jeremiah, 
if I say it to a nation, you follow me, I'm going to bless you. you and this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. And then you depart from me. God says, well, then I'm going to withdraw the blessing. It's not automatic. You have your role, I have mine. And this is what we're seeing in the life of Hezekiah. Now, maybe your theology doesn't like that because you've been told these things aren't like this way. Well, that's not what the Bible's saying. You've got to learn to listen to what the Bible is saying. And clearly, without a doubt, this man was told by God he was going to die of this illness. Then God adjusts his message to this man and saves his life. Gives him 15 more years. Life is not fatalistic. When you get to that place, what's the point? I've prayed and prayed for years. Someone just told me Sunday morning, their, their child and the wife gave their life to Christ. And I said, because I knew the answer was going to be good. How long have you been praying for them? The answer was 35 years. A fatalist would have given up a long time ago. It irks me. It does irk me. When people walk around and tell me that God is hard. They don't say it that way, but their doctrine is. Thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father. You know that's registering with Hezekiah because he knows David. Here's a man that loved God and messed up really big. Should have, should have been executed for his sin. And God spared him because God can. All of us should be executed for our sin. And God spares us. And we love him so much for it. Every Christian knows. You only have to hear it one time. I will cast your sins as far as east is from west. You only have to hear that one time. And you got it. Seven things are contained in this second message to the weeping king. God's sovereignty clearly stated in this answer. God is in control. He's not... You know, he, when he allows things to unroll this way, he's teaching us about him. He doesn't have to say from the cross, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He could just secretly, you know, know that this is the way it's going to be. But no, he verbalizes it. He publishes it because he wants us to know. That whole drama with the thief on the cross. This man has done nothing. We're, we're outlaws. We deserve this crucifixion. He has done nothing. He is the sinless one. God wants it heard. The seven things contained in this second message to the weeping king. I have heard your prayer. God hears all prayers. He hears all grumblings. Every idle word. But he also hears every spiritual word. Even, you know, some of those kooky Christians, they, they love the Lord, but they just, for the, or their entire life, they're going to be a little bit off to the left. God loves them just as much. And he hears their prayers, even though they offer these wacko prayers. You know what? That's just kooky. But, but God understands. And I, I got to be careful. Now, I'm not talking wrong things. You know, there are things a person can pray are just flat out not right. But I don't know, maybe, maybe you only know solid Christians because you turn, come to this church. But maybe you've never come across one that's like, ooh, there's a cookie for you. But they're a sweetheart. Anyhow, um, I mean, I'd rather ride in a car with a wacky Christian than a serial killer, wouldn't you? 
at least for the first few miles. I have seen your tears. God is fully acquainted with our grief. Moses talked about our tears being bottled up and put in a bottle for, you know, God retains these things. Because when you're suffering over a long period of time, you think God has no compassion. Have you ever said this to God? The apostles did. I have. Master, don't you care that we perish? Christ is sleeping on the storm-tossed boat, and they ask him that question. Don't you care? I'm sure it wasn't calm and collected theological. Uh, Master, do you not care? I don't think it was that way at all. I think, well, don't you care? Come on. I will heal you. Only God heals. There's no such thing as healing without God because he doesn't have to approve it. Regardless, now, certainly in creation, there are just laws. You know, the body can fight off a lot of things and recover. Still, God has to honor that. That's part of his sovereignty. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> he didn't cause me to cough. But he is causing me to tell you I didn't cough. <laughs> no. Uh, God heals. I, I have no doubt about that. And in his sovereignty, he controls. So let me, maybe if I put it this way. No sickness is out of God's control. No health is out of his control. There is nothing on earth that is out of God's control with the exception of man's will. And not entirely. Otherwise, Jonah, one of God's men, chose to run from God. And God said, fine, I'm going, to, I'm going to impress upon you a better choice. Jonah figured it out. I wonder if there was another prophet before Jonah who didn't repent and did stay in the ocean. <laughs> I don't know. This is an interesting thought. Anyway, God in his sovereignty, and that sovereignty never moves without love. God is love. It is fixed. It's not an, you know, like, well, you know, he's also loving. God is love. And you lose sight of that if you're not being healed or someone you love is not being healed. And, and God wants us to think beyond what we're looking at. Remember, Hezekiah is going to die in 15 years after the blessing comes. So this healing is, is of course, temporary, but let me get ahead of myself. He says, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. You will worship amongst witnesses. You will worship with the healthy. You will worship. That's the part that comes out. He's not going to be healed and stay, you know, away from God's house. He's going to go to God's house. That's what he's longing to do. That he could go to God's house. We'll come to that a little more in a bit. I will add to your days 15 years. Well, again, all healing in this life is temporary. Elisha became sick and he died. Uh, we all go through that, with the exception so far of two known men. I will deliver you and this city. It won't be a coincidence, God is saying, when I rescue the city from the Assyrians. You'll know it's me. Because, you know, the old uh, <clears throat> parable, a man is on a roof working and he slips and he's sliding off the roof and he's screaming for God to help him. And a nail snags his coverall, overall. And he says, oh, oh, whew, never mind, God, the nail got me. 
You see, that's the guy that doesn't understand prayer and the sovereignty of God and that the coincidence is not like that. Yeah, that, that can be a coincidence. You know, you toss a, a balled up piece of paper behind your back and it goes right into the trash can. You know, that kind of stuff. Like, God didn't. <laughs> don't tell me God directed that into the trash can. Maybe with a hand grenade, but not, not there. Anyway, I will defend the city. And this is fulfilled. God, uh, when this is not a coincidence. He's going to do it. It's not going to be anybody else. So Hezekiah asked for a reversal of a, of a divine decision, and he got it. Prayer defeats fatalism. Life is not fatalistic. I get that from this. I can pray and I can pray to God in heaven, even if I pray to God in heaven, and all of a sudden I'm right there with Him. I mean, it's the story of James of uh, David Livingston. They found him on his knees, dead. One minute he's talking to God, the next minute he's talking to God. I mean, this, who doesn't want to go that way? And David Livingston was a remarkable man, sleeping up in the trees, hoping that the lions wouldn't eat him at night. He could hear them out there. Oh, man. All because he was determined to take the gospel to where no one else took it. Verse 6, And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Here's David just being held up again. Be careful when you want to criticize David, or don't overdo it. This um, suggests that at least part of his illness occurred during uh, the events in chapter 19 when the Assyrian army comes, uh, came, or before the army was deployed. So it's around there, it's between the, uh, the fi- before the final invasion when the angel wipes them out. Verse 7, then Hezekiah said, take a lump, uh, then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. There, it is well documented that in the Middle East, this was a practice on ulcerated sores and other ancient writings. Uh, but had they tried this, and they probably already did, had they tried this before God pronounced it, it would have, not, it would have done nothing. Uh, God has to be the one. I can get a headache and take Tylenol, and I pray, you know, sometimes, Lord, I hope this works. This is a real bad one. Uh, but God could say, you know what, I don't want it to work. He could do that. Um, but that, just trying to put things in perspective for us. God can use a lump of figs. He can use mud in your eyes. Remember Jesus <laughs> took some of the earth, spat on it, and put it in the guy's eyes. Or he can use a surgeon. Or he could just do it. Verse 8, And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is a sign that Yahweh will heal me, and that I may go up to the house of Yahweh the third day? It's kind of stuck with him, did it not? The whole thing about the house of the Lord. I, don't, I think I would have said, What's a sign I'm going to find some relief from this suffering? And that probably would have been it. But he says, And, and go to the house of the Lord. We can hear in in this tone, I think, the longing to go to the house of the Lord. He is desperate for assurance. That just tells us how, you know, he doesn't want to go. Then Isaiah said, I think what's so powerful about this is what Isaiah did not say. Then Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from Yahweh. 
that Yahweh will do the thing which he has spoken, verse 9. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backwards 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is easy, an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So Isaiah, verse 11, the prophet cried out to Yahweh, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. I have no problem believing God's miracles. I have no problem believing Genesis 1. If I had a problem with Genesis 1, I'd have a problem with the rest. Paul appeals to the unbeliever without using direct scripture. He says, For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You won't be able to say, well, I didn't. How would I know there was a God? That's why the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. <clears throat> God is not angry, angry with Hezekiah for making the request. How dare you doubt me? Didn't the prophet say you're going to live? Why do we got to put me through this? He doesn't do any of that. That's what I meant by it's remarkable about what Isaiah does not say. God is as though God is saying to Hezekiah, I know life. I know life under the sun can be very rough. And I'm going to accommodate you on this. In the days of Jesus, it was a, a lot different. Why was it a lot different? Well, Isaiah wasn't, I mean, Hezekiah wasn't looking at multitudes atop of multitudes being healed right in front of him and then doubting. And in the days of Christ, after all that he did, no one should have doubted. Not one should have doubted. It was just not justifiable. If someone is walking around with a machete, slashing everybody they come in touch with, would you doubt that you're going to be next if you're standing in front of that guy? That's in the negative. In the positive, Christ just healed everyone. Unless he found unbelief to be too, uh, too dominant. We have no reason to believe Hezekiah abused this moment later in his life and all of a sudden became, you know, a, a, a healing ministry, which I, I don't know who would have the gall to say we're a healing ministry and you go there, nobody's getting healed. No legitimate ones, but they do. They're out there. Anyway, God uh, doesn't explain his miracles and I'm not going to try to do it for him. All I know is that what I know, I know a lot more, um, I mean, I know I'll be hungry at around 9.30 tonight. God did this, and I believe it, because there's too much of the Bible to back it up. Uh, you know those people who, who, who resist the police, as, as though the police are going to go away. I mean, don't you know that they're going to back it up? They're gonna, I was listening to these, uh, uh, this policeman that became a fireman. He's telling about being a policeman in New York City. He says, one of the best feelings about being a policeman in New York is when you asked for assistance, everybody was there. They just converge. And I'll attest to that. I saw, in, I was working in Brooklyn up on a lift, and uh, it was a methadone clinic there. And before the clinic opened, the, the, the addicts, the heroin addicts, they would gather outside this little uh, 
bodega, this little coffee shop. And there would be hundreds of them, and they'd be so loud, chattering. Well, they all went in and the, when the gates opened, and this one, he comes out, he, he's in the coffee shop, and he's angry, and he throws, you, see, you, see, you don't see him, you see a coffee and a bagel or something come flying out the door. At the same time, there's this little policewoman coming up. She must have been like two foot one. I, I mean, and, but she's strutting around, right? So we're watching all this because we're going to help her if, if it came to that. It would take us time to get down, but we wouldn't. Anyway, we're watching this. So she, she comes up, and he comes out the store, and she tells him, hey, pick that up. And he smacks her. Pow! And so she's on the phone. She gets on the, she backs it up. She, she calls it in. And, and within seconds, the housing police were there, the transit police, the city police. Uh, it was everybody, the, people, the police from Montana. They were just, this is a true story. We counted over 24 cars. We were probably missing some. It took them more time to back out. Really, they were all just in there. And they had to back out one by one. The first ones there, they couldn't get out. Of course, they arrested the guy. And you know he got a beat down. At least you could hope. And um, so I don't know where I'm talking about here. Uh, just the, the, the feeling of the support that they knew. The police knew they had their comrades backing them up. Well, shouldn't we as Christians? Don't we love it when, when the scripture backs it up? It backs up what it says. When we get to the prophecies fulfilled from this moment with Isaiah, a hundred years later, you would think the Jews, would, the unbelieving Jews that gave Ezekiel such a hard time, you would think they would say, hey, wait a minute. Isaiah laid out prophecies about the treasures of the temple being taken by the Babylonians, who at the time was a do-nothing little state, and it's now fulfilled. I think I'll start believing the Bible because it backs it up. And that's the point that I was after. Now, another interesting thing is God turns the, the, the clock back. You know, you can get into how he did it. He slowed the earth down gradually. And all that. I, I don't want to get into that. But I do want to say this. It was on the sundial of Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Isaiah the prophet had said, the Assyrians aren't coming into Jerusalem to, this pro- to Ahaz. And said, would you like a sign? And, oh, no, I don't want a sign. And because he was just an arrogant, no good king. And here, God slaps the miracle on the sundial of the wicked king Ahaz. Like a part, like, you know, I'm going to do the miracle anyway on the thing that's got your name on it. I see little things like that. I like that. Anyway, Isaiah adds a little bit more in his account of this experience in Isaiah 38. He talks about the prayer of Hezekiah once he's healed. He was so grateful to God. He writes, Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. You have cast all my sins behind your back. How many times do you have to hear that to love it? And so Hezekiah, you know, God heals him, and he just pours out this gratitude. And again, regardless of how many prayers go unanswered, I will strive to trust and obey Though he forsake me, though well, slay me, not forsake. Though he slay me, I will trust in him, said Job. Well, if Job can do it, I can certainly seek to do it. Because I know God knows what he is doing, I will trust him. Verse 12, 
At that time, Berodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Well, the, again, the ambassadors come, I think, soon before the second siege, or otherwise they wouldn't have been able to get to the city. And uh, they heard of this miraculous healing, and it likely contributed to the Assyrians saying, you know what, they're, they're, they're looking for help from the Babylonians. We're going to go and get rid of this king. His healing and testing fits perfectly here. He passes the test. Again, I read Second Chronicles 32-31. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him, from Hezekiah, in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. Well, when they come, the, pro, uh, the, the king is just loaded with pride. And it's, it, that, that's the problem with him. This is where he stumbles. And I think it was probably what he's talking about when he says that he throws my sins behind his back. So let's look at it. Verse 13. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house, verse 13 again, of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures, uh, treasures, there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Well, that must have taken some time. The historian pours it on pretty thick. He says everything. He shows him everything. Uh, and this is inappropriate. It was pride. It was short-sighted. It was naive. But it was hospitality. <laughs> it's careful how we seek to impress people, especially strangers. And the wealth of the kingdom should have been a guarded secret. But, he, and he should have known better. He's going to show them the crown jewels. Pride motivated the king to show off the crowns, the crown's possessions. And God was displeased with his motive. Going back to Second Chronicles. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, the healing, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of Yahweh did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Loose lips sink ships. And so why was he showing them everything? Because he was boasting. Look at this. Yeah, God healed me. You know, he, you know, I'm just really good. I fortified Jerusalem against them. I had waterways dug in. And yeah, you know, look at this. Uh, pride made him careless, and it will make us careless. Uh, pride caused him to let his guard down, and will cause us to let our guard down. Self-serving pride. It exalts the self. It puts me above others. And it makes me feel like I deserve to be blessed Nehemiah, uh, you know, he did not immediately share his intentions when he came to Jerusalem. He saw the mess. He went out to look at it by himself. And he makes it clear. I didn't tell anybody what I was up to. Because he knew what would happen, the, the problems that would make. Mary, the Virgin Mary. Twice we read that she hid these things in her heart. She hid these things in her heart. They were not for everybody. 
They wouldn't understand it. And then God himself, Revelation 10, verse 4. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Daniel had a similar experiences. Look, information is not for everybody all the time. It's on a need-to-know basis many times. And it's uh, very, you know, we get emotional, we get prideful, we get sloppy, and we, we, we don't shut our mouths. And I think it is a discipline to be tight-lipped, to know when to be quiet. It's not an easy one for any of us, I don't think. Some easier than others. It's easy for me if I don't like the person. <laughs> yeah, I guess you guys have never been there. Anyway, Hezekiah... <laughs> He's rebuked by Isaiah for showing the treasure, uh, the treasures of the kingdom, and to unbelievers. And he, now we get verse fourteen. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, "What did these men say? And from where did they come to you?" So Hezekiah said, "They came from a far country, uh, from Babylon." Because <laughs> again, Babylon at this time is not what Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to make it Babylon the Great. It's just this, you know, other little tiny kingdom. <clears throat> Verse 15. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. So he's so naive. He's like, he's telling them. I don't think he's boasting. I think he's, he can sense in the prophet's voice that there's an inquiry going on. This is an inquisition. And he's respecting the rank. This is the prophet Isaiah. He is not doing as other kings. Well, you mind your business. I'm the king. Asa, you know, was one king that did that. Uh, and he paid for it. But uh, Hezekiah is submitted to the prophet. He's telling him everything. Uh, but likely someone came to Isaiah and said, the king is taking these foreigners all over the place. Showing them everything. It's got to be, Isaiah, you've got to do something. And uh, two questions. What did they see? Where did they come from? Verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of, of the Lord. This ain't good. <laughs> this, is the, this is the air horn blowing. If a man thinks that God cannot speak to man, then that man's concept of God is defective. The Bible says, hear the word of Yahweh. In context, of course, coming from the prophet. But it is not limited to this event. Otherwise, we wouldn't have an entire book of Isaiah, etc. Verse 17, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house <clears throat> and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. Now, granted, Hezekiah had given a lot of way to the Assyrians to, to try to buy it, pay him off. He just got it all back through just, you know, the, the statesmanship and taxes. And, and so he's pretty happy about that. <clears throat> Verse 18 continues the judgment. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Well, Assyria will never get hold of any of this wealth, but a hundred years later, Babylon will. This is predictive prophecy. It is going to be fulfilled. We'll get to it in 2 Kings 24 and 25. Daniel was from the tribe of Judah. It is believed Daniel was a eunuch. And that 
uh, of the, he is certainly of the Davidic line, as clearly stated in Daniel 1.6. So again, back to my earlier statement, you would think it was startling that a hundred years later the Jews would read this and not be devoted to Yahweh. It's like reading, you know, the, the prophecies that are happening today about a cashless society not being able to buy or sell without the mark. The, there's just the ability to move so many troops that you couldn't do in the ancient world, but you can do now. You would think that someone would read that and say, God's word needs to be trusted because we're seeing prophecy. That's why Peter said we have the more sure word of prophecy. Uh, the people that he said that to knew the prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. And you would think they would repent and they don't. It, it's, it's enough to make you lose heart if you give in to the flesh. Verse, verse 19. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of Yahweh which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? <laughs> Hezekiah. Hezekiah said, Look, I've been dealing with the Assyrians all my life. I just got better. Now I messed up with this pride thing. Can, can I be spared this judgment? I mean, you got to, it's a very human thing here. I, I love that it's there. It's not the most heroic thing, but what's he supposed to say? Well, I sure hope I get, <laughs> suffer these things in my lifetime. That'd be crazy. Um, God is not petty. The king repented, but God still said, I know where this is going to go, and the Babylonians will be back. They're going to make note of this, and as their kingdom grows, somebody's going to bring it up. You know what? There's some nice stuff in Judah, and we need it. Verse 20. Again, you know, the kingdoms would say, look, if we don't loot it, somebody else will. So we might as well. Verse 20. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might, and how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Yeah, well, you can go through that tunnel to this day. It's there. And uh, you don't need to spend a lot of money for your flashlight either. Just a, I, I had a little pen light, and just as bright. Anyway, I know, I'm just kind of boasting because I know those guys spend a lot of money for those flashlights. And mine was free. I got it in a mail thing. <laughs> a pen with a little light on it. <laughs> Anyhow... Um, so and he channeled more than just Hezekiah's tunnel to the, from the Gihon Springs to the Pool of Siloam. And uh, this would allow them to withstand a siege. Verse 21, so Hezekiah rested with his fathers, then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. <clears throat> well, his reign was remarkable. Again, coming in the days of dark times with the Assyrians, there are two thoughts about Manasseh. One, that he was born after God spared Hezekiah's life. Now, Manasseh is going to be the worst of all the kings in the Bible, I think. Um, there's some, there's some runner-ups. <laughs> but 50, he had 55 years to be evil. And he used almost all of them to do just that. And legend has it, he's the one that had Isaiah stuffed in a hollowed log and then sawn in two. Well, we'll get to him starting next next session. But some believe that had Hezekiah died and not had his life extended, that Manasseh would not have been born. Well, if that's true, then Josiah would not have been born either. Uh, so 
I mean, I used to like that one. Some good Bible teachers have that position. Spurgeon has that position. But when you look at, when you try to reconcile the reigns of the kings and the co-regencies, and, you know, you, it, it starts leaning towards, you know what, Manasseh was probably already alive when all of this was, was taking place. So it's not a big deal. What it does do is it keeps you maybe from going out saying, if he died, we wouldn't have Manasseh, and, and as though that was the only story. That's not, there's a little bit more to the story. And so, you know, it, it could go, there's, there's evidence for both sides, but I think going against my earlier opinion from years ago, it leans towards, uh, yeah, he's probably a little kid at this time, but he was already there. Anyway, it doesn't have to be satisfied um, Judah, Judah will move instantly from the good king Hezekiah to the beast um, uh, Manasseh, who messes up the nation so badly that decades later God is saying, because of what Nat Manasseh did, I, I'm not going to reverse, even though Manasseh gets saved in the end of his life. Man, you can't just make this stuff up. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, this evening we ask that the lesson that your spirit has shared with us is very beneficial to your glory and our benefit. We pray that we have a good holiday, uh, Thanksgiving tomorrow, maybe even a chance to share the gospel with a loved one or a not-so-loved one. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.